Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church Podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope that this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, That was kind of nice. I like that the lights were already up rather than kind of getting blasted with the runway lights as soon as I I get up here. And then I'm like, is there people out here? I'm not sure. I can't see you all. Uh, We are in the final week of our foundation series. And in this series, we have talked through a lot. We've been walking through our denominations affirmations, which include the centrality of the word of God, a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit, the necessity of new birth, the fellowship of believers, the whole mission of the church. And then we even snuck an extra one in there with Dr. Kirsten on covenant identity. And this week, we get to lean a little bit deeper into what the last affirmation is, which is freedom in Christ. And I will give you a little bit of a preview. This is probably one of the easiest to understand of all of them, but the most difficult to apply. In the United States, freedom is a weighty word. It has layers of meaning. And it's something that as a pastor, I think through a lot. Freedom, the word freedom has become a little bit of a personal hobby horse of mine. And so some of you probably already know where I'm going from our many different conversations together. But in the United States, it's a word with layers of meaning. And interestingly, how we tend to use the word freedom is very unlike the ways that Jesus and Paul used the word freedom. Uh, And over time, the Western church has embraced this American understanding of freedom and so tightly that it threatens really to replace our understanding of the gospel. So dangerous stuff here. Uh, My hope for this morning is that we get a better understanding of what Jesus meant by freedom and that we might get inspiration for how we're to use the freedom that we're given. So please turn with me into John 8, 31 to 36 in your Bible or your Bible app. And as you're finding that passage, I'll give us some broader context to what's going on in the book of John. For several chapters, John has been building suspense around Jesus's identity. Not that John was confused, mind you, he knew perfectly who Jesus was, but the the onlookers were trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is and trying to place him. Was he a prophet? Was he just insane? Is he the son of God? Who is this man? And after several chapters of healing and teaching, John gives us this grand revelation of who Jesus is, calling through Jesus himself, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And there were many Jews that believed the testimony of who Jesus was. So Jesus turns to these Jews and he teaches them about freedom. Hopefully you found the passage by now. I'm going to read it for us. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. I'm going to put a pin right there. Did you all hear that? 
never been a slave of anyone. Been dismissed from slavery from Egypt. They have a distorted view of their own reality. How can you say that we will be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Earlier this week, I proudly told one of our staff members that I am preaching a sermon and it has no points. No points. And woo! And then, and then here's what happened. This was such a weird, awkward conversation. So I'm beaming with pride. I've broken the mold. I'm no longer in my three-point rut. And she looked at me and said, you're, point, you're preaching a pointless sermon? Maybe you need to start over again. <laughs> Well, well, there you have it. Now, there is a point this morning. I promise there is a point. Um, I don't have three of them. I have one of them. My point is this. I don't think Jesus meant what we mean when he used the word free. I don't think Jesus meant what we mean when he used the word free. And if you're a type A personality, if you're the type of person that needs to know where we're headed in this conversation... Uh, Here are the things that we're going to talk about. And yes, there's three of them. I don't know what's wrong with me. (laughs) I have a problem. (laughs) I can't get out. Here's here's what we're going to talk about. American freedom, slavery to sin, and freedom in Christ. Those aren't points, by the way. They're just a progression. So let's jump in. We have already said that in the United States, freedom is a weighty word with layers Of meaning, and there are at least, as I see it, two layers of meaning to freedom. First, freedom means to us a state of being, a state of being, one that is owed to us simply because we are human. And we learn this even from our constitution, right? We have inalienable rights as people, God given. And then, second, we have turned it into an ideology. So freedom is, for us, both a state of being, but it's also an ideology. As a state of being, we have varying levels of freedom, uh, representative of our ability to do various things. Here's an example. I am free to breathe, right? I can do that. There's not someone that's going to restrict that from me. I'm free to eat. I'm free to drive. I'm free to do a variety of different things. As an American... I desire to be as free as possible to do as many things as possible. In particular, I want to be free to make my own decisions about how I live my life. And as an American, I have a government that is dedicated to protecting that value for me. They're dedicated to this. And that's where the word ideology slides into play. It's also where Jesus's phrase, slave to sin, in verse 34, comes into play as well. I used to believe that the word ideology was another way to talk about ideas. You know, like the study of ideas, ideology, study of ideas. But the word actually means something different. According to economic scholar Bob Gudsvard, In its original sense, I want you to say that name a few times, huh? Gudsvard. 
In its original sense, ideology means an entire system of values, conceptions, convictions, and norms which are used as a set of tools for reaching a single, concrete, all-encompassing societal end. In other words, an idea is not just an idea or notion. It's much more than that. It's an entire system, a framework built around achieving a particular idea or notion. And as a system gets intricately more developed, the idea or notion that it supports becomes increasingly important. So much so that if we're not careful, that idea, we begin to believe it will save us. We do. In this way, an ideology is both a religion and a liturgy that informs our worship. To that point, Gudsvard continued on to say this, ideology is religion's substitute. It says, as God, I create my own norms and values. I saw what will benefit humanity, and I allow no God above or power below to make any other law. An idea couldn't possibly be this dangerous, could it? Could an idea be this dangerous? Yes, absolutely. An idea can be this dangerous. As soon as I say the words, if I only had, and fill in that blank, with whatever you'd like, then everything will be better. Everything will be okay. As soon as I say those words, I enter into very dangerous territory because what I've developed, whatever I've put in that blank, I have made for myself an idol. We have begun worshiping a particular ideal by orienting our entire lives around whatever that idea or concept or notion is because we believe that that thing, whatever it is, is going to bring us happiness. We start building our lives in a systematic way to obtain whatever that thing is. And that turns into a liturgy. A liturgy is a form or progression of something that we draw our attention to and honor up and uphold. So a liturgy is the way that we go about doing things routinely out of habit. And this liturgy drives us to worship whatever is at the end of it. And so this is what an ideology does. And we do this with all sorts of things, not just freedom. Forewarning, I'm about to meddle. Uh, and, And so hang on to your hats. Take romantic love, for instance. We have turned romantic love into an ideology. When I was a college pastor, I can't tell you how many times I heard a student say, I can't wait until I find the one, or I really want to find my person, right? Have you heard these phrases uh, in some of the mouths of our, our young people? Romantic comedies and the Hallmark movie channel have only reinforced this notion, this ideal, this ideology, they communicate to us that without a significant other, we are somehow broken or less than, that we need that significant other to complete us, to make us whole in some way. But here's the reality. 
In the honeymoon phase of marriage, right, you're obsessed with one another. You're convinced that your husband is literally the best person on the planet. And then one morning, you wake up with his face on your pillow, inches from your face, breathing in your mouth, wondering how something could smell and or taste as bad as what it does. And you start to realize in this moment that maybe marriage isn't exactly what Hallmark told me it was going to be. You realize that your husband is not perfect. And as time wears on, you realize your husband is so not perfect. Pray for my wife. Just stay in a constant state of prayer for my wife. She has to put up with me. She has to put up with this. Now, I don't mean to burst your bubble, but if you've bought into the whole Hallmark thing, Your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your fiancé, your husband, your wife, they will not complete you. They're not going to save you. They are not Jesus. They are not Jesus. Now, if they're right next to you, don't you dare say amen. That is not safe space. I just want to let you know that is not safe space. But here's what we've been told. This ideology has packaged to us through what we have consumed in our day-to-day, our movies, our media, our conversations, is that without someone else, I'm incomplete. So I need that person to complete me so I can be whole. The only thing that that can complete me or make me whole is Jesus Christ. There is nothing else. Anything else that I put into that space will fail It cannot actually do what it's promising me that it will do. It cannot complete or fulfill a gap or hole or space in my life. Only Christ can. And unfortunately, we don't do this with just romantic relationships. We do it with tons of stuff. We do it with money, work, retirement. We do it with sex. We do it with uh, possessions. We grab onto so many different things that our culture tells us will make us whole and we buy into it and create systems around having more of it because guess what? We realize in some space that it's not working. But they promised that it would work. It's not working, so I need more. Maybe if I have more of it, it will finally work. And it doesn't work. In the particular case of freedom as an ideology, there is still yet another danger. Because in this case, we are not simply just worshiping another God. We're elevating ourselves as God. To be entirely free to pursue personal happiness means to be like God. It's the same temptation that Adam and Eve had in the garden. To be like God, to know good and evil, to make the judgment pronouncement on what is good for my life and what is evil for my life and for me to choose on my own because I'm like God and I can be like God and make those types of decisions. Freedom for Jesus does not have to do with us being able to discern for ourselves 
what is good or what is evil, and then to act in the ways that we think are good. I believe Jesus would call that, would call the ideology of freedom another form of slavery to sin. Here's how the slavery to sin works for us. We can, we create an intricate system of living our lives, which involves giving ourselves as much financial freedom, educational freedom, sexual freedom, religious freedom, and philosophical freedom as possible. We design entire systems around this. And then one day we realize we're trapped. We're trapped chasing increasing levels of personal freedom. We're ladder climbing in our careers, getting to this next place, wherever that place is, thinking it's going to make us happy. We're positioning our kids for athletic or academic scholarships beginning at age two and orienting their whole lives around an academic or an athletic scholarship. We're protecting our own relevance and influence by buying the right clothes and the right house and the right car so that people will think, you know, the right things about me and who I am and so that they'll take me seriously. Then one day we wake up and that we realize we're suffocating chasing down these things that promised happiness but could absolutely not deliver. And we also realize that we're trapped in this system. We can't get out. We've oriented our whole lives around this so that we could get it. So we feel committed. I can't stop now. I've done so much. What if I don't have it? What if I can't get it? That's terrifying. There's no ramp, off-ramp because everything we do supports that system. Everything we do is about serving our own will, our own intellectual freedom, our own capacity to make right and wrong proclamations on our life. The ideology of American freedom, if we leave it unchecked, will ultimately enslave us to our own sinful will a will that wants to be like God. The freedom Jesus offers is not at all like the freedom that America offers. Jesus' freedom is a paradox. His freedom does not result in us getting to follow the random whims and desires of our heart that really changes his mind moment by moment. Quite the opposite, in fact. Our freedom comes paradoxically through surrendering our will, laying down our freedom at the foot of the cross, at the feet of Jesus. It's laying down and submitting my will and taking up Christ's will. It involves actively following Jesus. It's actually, in many respects, the exact opposite of personal freedom. It is the submission of myself to Christ's will and recognizing that as I submit into his will, as I lean in, and as John tells us in the very beginning of his gospel, that this Christ, this word, this Jesus is the one through whom all things are created. And when I realize I lean in harder to him, that I become the person that he created me to be, which is the freest I could ever be. 
right, to rest in who I was created to be because only Christ can unlock that in me. Only submitting my will to him can paradoxically bring me freedom. And it involves following Christ. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. When we surrender our will, our personal freedom, and follow Christ, here's what we get. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from shame. Freedom from purposelessness. Here's also what we get. Freedom to love God. Freedom to love our neighbor. Freedom to love ourselves. The freedom we have in Christ is a freedom to follow, worship, and honor God. Those are the things that, in fact, we get to do for all eternity. It's a freedom to participate in eternity now, today. The things that we will reverberate on for all time. We can do things today that have eternal significance through Christ's freedom. It's a freedom to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, walking out that freedom in community with one another is where things get a little bit difficult. When talking about Scripture in the Evangelical Covenant Church, we say that Scripture is the only rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. And what we mean by rule, we mean guide, like ordo, the thing we order our life around. And what we mean by that is we hold Scripture as our guide for what we believe and how we act. It's our understanding of 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That said, maybe you're new to Scripture, or maybe it's been a little while since you've dug in. I'm here to remind you or let you know, Scripture can be hard to understand. It can be tricky. If you don't believe me, go back to Romans 1, start our summer series over again, and walk through the book of Romans, chase Paul's mind. It's tricky and slippery stuff. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are times where we study the same scripture, the same passage, and we walk away with different understandings of the same scripture, of the same passage. And we can defend our position through scripture, the same passage that the other person is reading. For instance, some Christians believe an infant is to be baptized. Some Christians also believe that baptism is to be reserved for believers. Both are using this book. Both have very intricate and detailed explanations through this book of why which of the other is to be the case. This sort of thing happens Uh, pretty regularly as we read scripture together and as a community. So how are we to operate with one another as a body if we can read scriptures and come away with very different views of how to worship and honor God and how to love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, this too is an expression of our freedom in Christ. According to our denominations affirmations paper, 
And yes, that's exactly what it's called. That quote there at the bottom, Covenant Affirmations paper, that's as creative as we got. Um, That's what it says. And here's what it says. According to our denomination's affirmations paper, covenanters have offered to one another theological and personal freedom where the biblical and historical record seems to allow for a variety of interpretations of the will and purposes of God. What this means is that we recognize that we can come together and read this book and walk away with different understandings of how to live life. And when we stumble into those moments, there's but two appropriate responses. Uh, The first is that we recognize that our call is to major on the major and minor on the minors. So we hold Christ up to be the most significant and monumentous piece in all of Scripture and pointing there and that he's our Savior. That's a major. A minor is the type of thing like baptism. We believe you should be baptized. We believe that's important. In the ECC, we say each church should pick for itself which is their primary mode. That's what we would call a minor. And now, here's what we can't do. What we can't do in those moments where we are debating about a minor is to dehumanize or demonize or devalue the person that's opposite of us. They're not on the wrong team. They're on our team. They're part of the body of Christ. Our response is not to be fighting with them. It's still to be kind and caring and considerate to the other believer as a brother or a sister in Christ, which leads to the second appropriate response, is to lead with grace. To recognize if the same Holy Spirit is empowering that person and is empowering me, maybe we need to sit down and have a conversation together. And maybe as we sit down and the Holy Spirit partners in that conversation, he's going to transform both of our thoughts if we'll but honor and respect one another in this conversation. And that's why as a community of believers, the ECC has always been about sitting and reading this book together in community under, under the influence of the Holy Spirit and his guidance. Friends, in Christ... We have the opportunity to live in a freedom so much bigger and grander than anything that we ever thought could be possible. It far surpasses anything that the American dream can offer. He's given us the the freedom to be the person that we were created to be, a freedom that breaks the chains of sin and death, a freedom to worship and honor and love God with our whole being, a freedom to honor and love our neighbor as ourself. Let's lean a little bit more into that freedom this morning. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the ability to live in this United States that protects so much freedom of ours. We're thankful that we get to enter into this house of worship, your house, and worship you free of any thoughts of persecution because we know that there are brothers and sisters around the world that do not have that same experience, and we're so thankful for that freedom. Lord, as we live in this culture, help us to not, though, Forget that we are 
not the center of the universe, you are. That in a culture that's designed to give me the whims and desires of my heart, that you are to be the whim and every desire of my heart. And that my life is not about me, but it's about you, and we repent for the times that we forget that. Lord, may we lean into your freedom a little bit harder and a little bit tighter today so that we can walk in your ways and lean into the people that you've created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.